0: Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. Today, Detroit guitar legend, Dennis Coffey. Dennis was a member of the Funk Brothers, Motown's house band that played on hundreds of the label's hits. And in 1971, he had his very own top 10 hit, Scorpio. Now, our talk with Dennis Coffey the first record that you were on you were what 15 years old
1: yes I was So I got hired to do the session and did two guitar solos on there
0: and you're like in high school doing this
1: yes I had to have somebody drive me to the session because I wasn't old enough to drive <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, that's amazing and also notice uh, I saw the label and you are actually credited on the label yes that's kind of unusual, isn't it?
1: Well, back in the day, you know, the guy had his own record label, and uh, it would have done better had he had distribution, which I don't think he did, so uh, that's probably why he did it that way.
0: Was that a hit in Detroit?
1: Uh, I don't think it was. I only heard it played on uh, WEXL, I think it was a country station. I heard it on oh, okay. there a couple of weeks after I recorded it, which I thought was pretty cool. When I graduated from high school, uh, I volunteered for the draft. And then I also volunteered for the 101st Airborne Division. So at 18, I was uh, at uh, uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky with the 101st. And uh, it was interesting because I had heard later that Jimi Hendrix was on there at the same time, although I didn't meet him, But, but I was still in that same environment jumping out of airplanes for cash. So that, that's what happened to me. And then at, by 20, I was back out again and still too young to work in the bar, but so I did it anyway. So I was working six nights a week in the clubs uh, at the age of 20. And, uh, and so I, that just started my career, you know, as far as uh, music was concerned. You know, that was my livelihood.
0: And then you also started doing uh, recording. Um, I know that you recorded behind uh, Del Shannon.
1: Yeah, but even before that, when I was in the Army, uh, I had managed to get a recording contract and uh, record it on a record, and they gave me the name Clark Summit, (laughs) because they said... (laughs) Dennis Coffee couldn't have a hit, so I actually was, uh, the uh, after I transferred out of the Airborne after the first year, because I was bored, just sitting around waiting for something to happen, so I, I went down to Fort Jackson, they put me down there, and then I was recording with Maurice Williams and all those folks, so I was, I was making records and working in the clubs while I was in the Army all day, so it worked out pretty good.
0: The whole 60s was an incredibly active time in Detroit in terms of music.
1: Uh, yeah, Detroit. Detroit is still uh, a musical city. I mean, you know, before this virus, I was playing every Tuesday night at Northern Lights Lounge for like uh, twelve years, and and that's only two miles away from the Motown Museum. <laughs> so, that oh, was my God. circumference of uh, <laughs> of travel, a two mile radius of doing that.
0: You're still playing though. That's the point, and you're going to play more uh, after this yeah. is all over. Absolutely,
1: I have a, a rehearsal band in the box, so I, I practice all the time, and so I'm just waiting until this thing will settle down where I can get back in the clubs. Right now, you can.
0: Now, now you mentioned Mike Theodore, and um, you guys started a company, a production company. Yes, and you uh, discovered some uh, interesting talent during that time.
1: Yes, we did. Rodriguez being one of them. You know, that was a big deal, and mm-hmm. uh, and we had Jim Gold in the gallery. We had CJ and Company, and uh, we, we did a bunch of things, you know, a bunch of artists and so forth, but that, that's kind of what we did. And then I was, I was part of that, too, because I was signed to Sussex. And Clarence Avon was the president of Sussex Records, and he gave Mike Theater and I our first real shot at the record business because he put us on salary as house producers for Sussex, so
0: it was great. So also, um, I discovered that before it was Rare Earth, it was the Sunliners, and yeah. you were involved with them, too?
1: Yeah, they were a bar band, and uh, we did uh, one album on them for uh, MGM, I think it was called The Sunliners, before they became Rare Earth.
0: So so how did you get to Motown? How did that all happen?
1: I got a call from James Jamerson, who ended up being my best friend over there, and he introduced me to Hank Cosby, which was the contractor for Motown, for the musicians, And he says, we're putting together a producer's workshop that Jamerson's going to have the band. And the purpose of the workshop is to allow the producers to come in and rehearse songs and experiment, and they won't be on the clock, so to speak. Uh, I started doing that, and uh, within a couple months, Norman Whitfield came in. And he had a chart on a song called Cloud 9 he wanted to do and run it down and stuff. And I happen to have a wah wah pedal in my kit, so I put the wah wah pedal on the intro of that. And Norman says, That's it. That's what I want.
0: That's the so, wah wah we hear at the beginning of the song.
1: Yeah, yeah. So two weeks later, I was playing with the Temptations, and that's it. And Norman had me over there all the time. And then all the other producers caught on, and then they had me over there, you know.
0: So you you were, uh, you know, I, I've. Obviously, heard a lot about the Funk Brothers, and right. there's also that uh, documentary about them standing in the shadow right. of Motown. Right. I saw a long time ago, when I refreshed my memory this weekend with it. Okay. And were you a Funk Brother?
1: you know what? It's like anything else. Uh, I was down there every day. The only reason I'm not giving more credit in the movie because uh, uh, I, I didn't have time to be messing around with Slusky's vision. He wanted to put together a rehearsal band and tour and all that stuff. I says, I got a job. You know, I says, I'm not available for anything like that. Mm-hmm. So he kind of did that kind of deal. And then he tried to play my guitar parts in the film, which is stupid anyway. But anyways, that, that, that's, that's the whole piece of where... So he decided... He would put the Funk Brothers and try and exclude me, but if you call the Motown Museum, I donated a guitar to them. It's sitting right there in my seat in the Motown Museum, so it was pretty hard to say I wasn't a Funk Brother.
0: But, you know, one difference that struck me in reading your book was that, unlike them, now they were employees of Motown, right? They They were were committed to Motown.
1: They were under contract, absolutely.
0: Whereas you were a free agent, essentially.
1: Yes. I was, and that, that that worked out well for me because at one point in time I was doing double sessions for Motown all day, then I'd do the workshop, and at 10 o'clock at night I'd be working for Holland, Dozier, and Holland, and Hot Wax for Invictus. An and so Harry Balk at Motown called me up, and he says, you know, he says, uh, we don't like you working for... Uh, Holland, Dozier, and Holland, blah, 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 you know. And I said, well, you're mixing me up, Harry, with those guys you got on a retainer. I said, I'm a yeah. free agent. Uh, I says, uh, I, I do what I want. I says, okay. Oh, we won't call you. I says, don't call me any hung up. I two love that. Later, yeah, two, wow. two, two weeks later, I was on Norman Whitfield property. says, you did what? No. So suddenly I'm back in the lineup at Motown again, and no one said a word about that after that.
0: Yeah, because because uh, if anyone doesn't know, Holland Dozier Holland were the you know writers producers at Motown for a long. Yeah, time. And they had their own
1: setup. They had Hot Wax and Invictus. they, they, had left they
0: started the new their own record companies, right? Hot Wax, yeah. yeah, right. Uh-huh. Chairman of the board, to Payne.
1: Yeah, I played in all that stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, one question about chairman of the board. Uh, give yes. me just a little more time. When he does that gargling at the end,
1: mm-hmm.
0: was that was that? Uh, wh- where was whose idea was that? Was that was, that's my favorite part of the whole record?
1: You know, I, I don't know because uh, usually uh, we uh, just like all the time you did the tracks. You didn't have the singers always there, so I you know they brought the singers in later. It was always a process, you know. So you recorded. Usually had the producer and the arranger there. So you did the rhythm section, tracks, you know, and the producer Mm -hmm. and arranger, you know, worked to make sure that uh, it was what they wanted. And then later they brought in uh, the singers, the background singers, and added horns and strings and did the mix downs. That's kind of how it worked.
0: So generally you did not work with the singers on these records?
1: No, no, we did not. I worked, uh, uh, one time I worked with The Temptations in a live show on TV Uh, in California when I lived out there and they sent me a thank you note. Uh, it's on my wallet. It says, Dear Dennis, in the face of adverse conditions, you were a foundation of solid rock for us, and we will never forget it. Please allow us to humbly say thank you with deep appreciation to temptations. Uh, and they all signed it.
0: Very cool. And you probably did more temptations, right, than any other Motown artist? It seemed like it. I looked at the list at the back of your book. and you yeah, know.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, uh, Norman put me all, all that stuff because the world was going into psychedelic, and I was the guy that Norman needed to... Motown into that. He used me for that. That intro to Ball of Confusion, I can I just created right on the spot. Uh, you know, in Motown, people don't really understand what the Funk Brothers did. Is we went to the went into a studio, we read a chart of a song we've never seen before, we played it correctly, and we made them hits with no mistakes. One song an hour. People don't understand that nowadays. That you, you did what? That's, that was our job. One, One song, song an, an, hour. an hour, read a chart you correctly that you've never seen before, and make it a hit with no mistakes. One song an hour is what we usually did.
0: So, so in other words, the singer, let's say you, know, you were on a, a Marvin Gaye record or, or whatever, you n- didn't necessarily have that much contact with him.
1: Uh, except the I Want You album that Marvin Gaye was producing on himself in L.A., Marvin was right there. Working with the rhythm section, he was smoking a joint the whole time. But hey, that's Marvin, you know. And he was right in the studio with the rhythm section because he was a producer and he was, you know, trying to get us to do what he what he wanted us to do, and which we did, you know.
0: Love it, and that was L.A.
1: Yes.
0: What about the Miracle song? Now, one of my another one of my favorite songs. I'm indulging myself here okay. is "Do It, Baby."
1: Yeah, I did. That was out in L.A. too. L.A.
0: It's it's yeah. So the Motown moved to L.A. Right. And. Most of the Funk brothers did not go with them
1: I don't think any of them did. I don't think they were invited
0: they weren't invited
1: no uh, I don't think they were and uh, I, and I'd have to ask Barry about that. All I know is uh, I went to l a because there were no record companies left in Detroit so me and Theodore both went to l a and uh, when I first got there I called Motown and uh, let them know I was in town and suddenly I got a call to do a session at Motown. So I went to Motown at 10 a.m. in the morning. I didn't get done with that session until 4 a.m. the next day. That's how much material they had that they wanted to put me on because they recorded it and I wasn't there yet.
0: One of the things that really struck me uh, in reading your book is these were obviously elite musicians.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but,
0: But the thing is, they weren't just sitting there playing the notes that they brought a tremendous amount of energy and creativity to uh, the recordings.
1: Yeah, but you have to understand at Motown they had a master rhythm sheet with all the parts on it and that's what we were reading off of. Uh, They let me uh, improvise and Eddie Willis improvise because we could do that kind of stuff. Uh, But generally speaking it wasn't like they just said, "Oh, here's a song. You guys make up the arrangements. They uh-huh. had great arrangers over there, Paul Reiser and all those guys. Mm-hmm. So it was set up that way. What we did provide is a way to get a Motown sound that was repeatable all the time. That, that Barry wanted. You know, he he wanted that standard, and that's what we did every day." That standard, all the Motown records. When you heard it, you knew it was a Motown record. That—that's what it was. It was the Funk Brothers, the same guys playing in all the sessions, and and uh, the standard because we had arrangers. We had we were in the same studio, and, and that was in Detroit. LA was a little bit different because then everything changed. Then the Funks weren't out there. There were different musicians all the time, and uh, that was a. Then then I think Barry lost the Motown sound. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I think.
0: So was the Motown sound the Funk Brothers essentially? Is, that, is it was, that
1: It was a regional Detroit sound which meant the Funk Brothers.
0: Uh-huh. That
1: was the sound that was selling all those records. And I used the Funk Brothers on Scorpio. Can't get more Motown than that.
0: Do you think that maybe they just didn't appreciate the contribution that the Funk Brothers you guys made? in terms of just uh, leaving town uh, without taking them with? Yeah, that was a whole other,
1: another deal. But there was scuttlebutt where the musicians at Motown were starting to say, well, why are all these producers making all this money and they're all living better than we are? Even though, you know, they did well. I know when I was a studio guy here, I was driving a, uh, a Fleetwood Brom like everybody else. So even though the Funk Brothers, you know, felt they weren't getting paid enough, but... Uh, We were all still driving Fleetwood, so, you know, but that was their issue, not mine.
0: Yeah. One one of the quotes I, I pulled out of your book is you say, when Motown left Detroit, the end result was Barry Gordy and Motown, 140 million musicians nil. That's right. And then when Motown left, that left them a lot in the lurch. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, they were already trying to create the Motown sound out in L.A. I don't think Barry, because that that was his sound. He was the visionary. I mean, it's because of Barry, you had the Motown sound. So he was out in L.A., and so he was trying to create the sound where he lived. You know, for, that was his purpose. But he didn't realize that, that the whole identity of the Motown sound, it was a Detroit regional sound. It was done in the city of Detroit, a very musical city like uh, New Orleans and stuff. There's still music going like crazy all over the place here.
0: And you went out to L.A. as well?
1: Yeah, I went out there because with Motown not here, there wasn't any work here much, you know. So me and Mike Theater went out there to try and see if we'd get into the movie business or whatever. So, you know, I did do Black Bill Jones. But then I said, you know what, I don't want to be in the, do this music business crap anyway. And then after three years, I said, you know what, I don't even like living out here. So I came back here.
0: But before you left for L.A., that's when you recorded Scorpio. And the story about that, about Scorpio, uh, which uh, I didn't know, was that initially it and the album it came from were not successful.
1: The first year uh, the album came out, uh, it wasn't doing anything, so... I'm already you know I'm already in the studio I said well maybe people aren't interested in this guitar band thing because I did a guitar band with Scorpio that that was the concept of the album so like I had eight guitars playing the melody to Scorpio and all this stuff you know so I figured well that's not really working so uh, I'm in the studio doing going for myself which has some songs that me and Mike wrote for horns and strings and stuff because we could arrange all that stuff you know we'd do 50 pieces and we could arrange it so anyways uh and then I got a call from Ron Mosley. He was the uh, uh, promotion head of A&R in New York. And he says, look, I know you're working on another album. He says, stop. He says, Scorpio is taken off. He says, the dance clubs have found that record and it's killing it in New York. He says, I'm going to reservice Scorpio. He says, I think we got a hit. He says, so whatever album you're doing, just stop so we can service it. And then I wrote... Uh, chorus and some more Scorpio kind of songs and put them on that second album.
0: So it took like a year for it to become a hit. but It
1: did, yes. But there you go. But look at Rodriguez, it took him 50 years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
1: It took a movie in 50 years to get people to catch up to him. Yeah, and Mike Theodore heard him right away. Me and Mike Theodore heard Rodriguez right away, signed him up and did that album. Out.
0: Rodriguez, if, if someone listening doesn't know, uh, was a Detroit artist. Uh, who didn't have initial success uh but right. that became a star in what is it Australia and South uh South Africa or something? Correct.
1: Yes, uh huh, yeah.
0: And then uh then someone did a movie on this and they uh yeah. Great movie. Loved it. And
1: yeah, the, the, the whole thing was Malik did this movie on him. And, uh, and he came to my house and says, well, I'm doing a uh, documentary on Rodriguez. I want to take some footage, you know. He came over from Sweden, and he had a, a light girl with him. And so they did some footage in my house. And a year later, they did some more stuff. You know, I said, sure, fine. You know, I didn't think much of it. I didn't know it would be an Academy Award-winning documentary. <laughs> Who
0: we'll do knew that? Yeah, he's still around. Is he still kicking around town? Yeah, yeah,
1: he's still around, yeah. He came down to the club about four or five months ago to hear me and stayed a set. You know, we talked for a while.
0: Now, Scorpio also uh, gave you the uh, distinction of being the first white artist to perform on Soul Train.
1: Yep. And the place was packed. The people just packed that place to hear me play because I brought my whole band and we did it live.
0: After that, you moved to L.A. Mm -hmm. You came back to Detroit. Yes. What is it about Detroit?
1: It's the vibe. You know, me, uh, I, it's just uh, L.A., after three years, I was still going to new studios I'd never been to. And I was still meeting rhythm sections i never played with before. And L.A. Is, is such a spatial town. I mean, it's just laid out. It goes on for miles and miles. You know, it's just, it didn't have that, that little vibe that, that Detroit has. Detroit is a very musical city you can go any night of the week and hear live music in Detroit which means the bar owners are willing to pay for it the audiences are willing to support it and the artists You know, that's how you get an artist community. You have to have jobs. Detroit has that.
0: So you get back to Detroit, but Detroit in terms of record companies, I mean, Motown left a big void, right? Sure
1: they did, yeah. Once I came back to Detroit from L.A., you know, uh, me and Theodore were doing a few things here. And then it still seemed to be, there there wasn't... uh, a lot of music business here. So we went to New York and tried it there for, lived in New Jersey for a couple of years and tried it there. And then uh, I just said, you know what? I was down to about my last 10 grand in the bank, bank and I told theater, I can't stay here. And Mike was, uh, he also does sound engineering. Mike, uh, we were going to invest in a studio in New York, but that didn't pan out. So then Mike got a job managing another studio because he could also engineer. So he stayed in New York, and I came back to Detroit. And when I got back to Detroit, I ended up working on a semi-line at GM because I needed to find a job. And uh, I did that for a while. And at the same time, I went back to school and got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Wayne State. So at the end of the day, I was... uh, uh, I was ending up being a consultant uh, on lean manufacturing and a coach and assessor so I was assigned uh, to Ford Motor Company so I made tons of money doing that.
0: So you, you succeeded in two very different careers.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it had to be tough though when you first came back.
1: Yeah but you know what happens is uh, I know a lot of musicians If you stay on the music business, when you start to age out, it will kill you. You have to get off the damn horse and get another horse. And that's what some of the people, you know, that's why a lot of these guys are self-destructing because no one, the phone stops ringing. You're, you're, you know, because it's a very short career. You got 20 years if you're lucky. I had 20 years. Yeah, so what do you do? What I did is found another job because I had to be working.
0: It's, it's very impressive that you were able to do that because a lot of guys can't. Uh, yeah. Well, or, or they think they can't and they yeah, don't.
1: Yeah, but I remember going back to college when I was working on assembly line.
0: You, though, are still performing. I mean, not right sure. the moment, but you're still still very involved in music. Absolutely. So you got more than your 20 years.
1: Hey, like I say, I did my first record date at 15, and I'm still waiting for this Blow up here to move on, so I can get back to it, and I'll be playing one night a week, I'm sure, and uh, uh, and keep doing that. And in the meantime, I've done a couple of TV shows I've been on, things like that. There's one called One Detroit you can probably find on the internet.
0: So, what do you think about music of today? What's your take on it?
1: You know what? Uh, each generation. I mean, obviously the hip hoppers sampled all my stuff. You know. Yeah. So. Clarence, me, you know what I told Clarence because he owned the copyrights on the music itself and every every beat on those records so Clarence told me he says look because at the time he was chairman of the board at Motown in New York so Clarence says look let's not have everybody soon everybody because we'll just tie up resources he says I'll talk to the major heads of all the labels and we'll figure out how to get you some money for these samples and so I started getting paid because they made me part writer of the songs that, that that were using the samples and I started getting paid for that.
0: Anyone you specifically like or respect uh, doing music today? <laughs>
1: You know what? Uh, It's like anything else, you know, the younger generation, you can find young people in Detroit that are good musicians and writers and all that stuff. I mean, it's part of the DNA of Detroit, you know, so the, the young musicians are reflective of their peers and the music they create, and they're very good. You know, it's not like uh, we were better or that they were better or whatever. I mean, it, music is what makes us human, you know, and so it's going to replicate in some fashion. Okay, now, sure, they were doing a lot of samples and a lot of computer-based programming, but there's still a lot of live bands, country especially, with a lot of live bands, and you've got... Uh, uh, jazz live band, so you got a lot of uh, musicians working together to create sessions, which is uh, it's not as much as it used to be because uh, nowadays a, a keyboard guy will go in and write all the stuff and bring the guys in one at a time to uh, overdub the parts, you know, and it's to a click track that makes for a very dry sounding record. Everything's perfect. At Motown, we were like eleven guys playing live together in the studio that's what gets lost nowadays because in all this technical stuff the people overlooked that that's what made that motown sound so lively and we were playing off of each other was live musicians playing together you know that's what they need to have more of
0: you were feeling each other you were it wasn't robotic
1: absolutely you know so that gave it that that human sound
0: yeah, it was awesome. I mean, what a great era in music. Um, yeah. You know, what? I, made a, I looked over your list. You have a list in the back of your book uh-huh. of um, songs that you were on, and I, okay. I made a list of some of my personal favorites, and I, okay. I, if you have any anything you can tell me about these, I really would enjoy hearing them. Sure. Uh, one of them was uh, The Undisputed Truth, Smiling Faces.
1: Okay, that was uh, Norman Whitfield, and uh, and I created that solo during the tracking section.
0: Then the one in the middle of the, the song?
1: Yeah, yeah. I made that up. I used uh, this Condor unit that gave it that octave harps, harpsichord sound. I made yeah. up that solo in the tracking section right on the spot.
0: Love that. Love that. And it's and also what I like about it, too, it starts so big.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, 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 Norman Whitfield was the master at dynamics. I mean, he'd break things down to a drum beat. And he'd build them back up, and all that. That was one of his things. He was very. It happy.
0: was just huge. Another one I like for a very different reason. The floaters float on. Okay. Just because I think it's funny at the beginning when they're going through all their astrology.
1: Yeah, well, what the funny part is the uh, the guy in the band was trying to create the Echo Plex sound that I had on uh, one of the records of uh, the Dramatics on that first record. And and he couldn't do it because he didn't realize there was an echoplex. And so I had to have my echoplex in my car because I was a ranger on that session. So I brought my echoplex in and hooked it up for him and showed him how to use it.
0: So I got the Dramatics down here, too, in the rain.
1: Yeah, that, yeah that, that was the first session I used. The first dramatics thing was in the rain and the second one was what you see is what you get.
0: Great songs. You've made such a contribution uh, to the music of my life and so many other millions, billions, who knows. Uh, I really appreciate talking with you today.
1: Okay, well, I was, uh, I'm always helpful that someone's interested in what I've done, and once we get back going here to see where I'm going to be playing next.
0: <laughs> I would love to come down and see you play, and I will definitely come up and introduce myself. All right, very good. Okay. Well, thanks so much again. You're welcome. Thanks again to Dennis Coffee, And we'll be back again next Wednesday with another episode of RPM 45.